You're listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense with your host, Doug Thorpe. Here's Doug. Well, hello again, everyone. This is Doug Thorpe, and you're listening to another episode of Leadership Powered by Common Sense. We're the show where we take uh, leadership issues, topics, hot topics of the day. We try to break it down into some easier to understand common sense ideas to give you some tips and help to navigate this crazy, volatile business world that we live in. My guest today is a gentleman who's going to help us attack, diffuse, dispel, break down, get rid of the blame game. And uh, his name is Dustin Steger. Dustin, welcome to the show. Thanks, Doug. Appreciate you having me. Yeah, I was excited when I met Dustin and we did our usual kind of lead up and prep talk. And, uh, you know, this this idea of placing blame that that seems to be a a common uh, sport that I think is out in the world. And I don't know if it's any worse than it's always been or maybe it's just a little more prevalent. Uh, People have various uh, new channels and ways to do things. But uh, tell us how you kind of got into this area, Dustin. You know, what what was your journey about that got you into this focus point? Yeah, sure. Uh, so it's kind of strange that I would be, you know, focused in on, on blame because uh, my background really is more around uh, creative work. I've worked in advertising and marketing for most of my career. And uh, but at the same time, uh, at a a moment that I was working with a company that we partnered with Steelcase, the global leader in office furniture. Right. And they had put out a lot of research around creativity and how the physical space, your physical office environment can impact the creativity that your workers are able to do. So it was all about kind of the physical environment. And so I started doing a little bit, you know, I'd read the research, I got behind it, I was helping get that message out to the public. And then later on, I started thinking about, you know, that is that is a message about how do you create an environment that fosters creativity? That's something that I feel like I can get behind and I can push on that probably for the rest of my life. But as I started thinking about it, there's more to our work environment than the physical structure of it. And so what other ways, what are the things that are happening outside of that physical environment that happen that impede our creativity, our productivity, and our innovation within the workplace? And so as I started really peeling the onion back, you know, there were all the kind of cliche answers that come with that, which is, you know, that uh, people are afraid. It's like, okay, well, peel the onion back a little bit from there, right? Well, they're afraid of failure. Okay, well, we've heard that a lot too, but there's a lot of organizations where people fail and at the same time, they're able to pick back up and to right the ship and to learn from those failures and to grow from that. And they have a high level of innovation and creativity. Some of the companies that are the most creative are probably failing the most, but they're doing it in a specific way. So what is different about that environment versus the environments where people are allowing allowing that fear of failure to hold them back? And as I looked at that, okay, fear of failure, what's the next level of that? Well, it's not just that that failure occurs, but that there's blame that's assigned to somebody, right? And so as I started looking at that, I started looking at the research, 
from people like Amy Edmondson, who's you know talked about the the fearless organization. When you look at uh, what the leaders at IDEO have done to create what they call creative confidence within their work culture, there and they're a global leader in industrial design and experience architecture and those kind of things. That what they look at is creating psychological safety within the organization, and so that that fear of blame is a big inhibitor of psychological safety. So what's happening in these organizations? You know, why are they allowing, you know, blame to uh, intimidate their employees? Why are they allowing it to mislead their leadership as well, as far as where their focus is? And how is that keeping people from taking risks and making the right choices? And how is that creating some of these toxic environments at the same time? You know, it just happened that, you know, after uh, the, during the pandemic, you know, we saw this great resignation that occurred. And so we had all these people that kind of opted out of their workplace. And because, and the leading factor that contributed to that was a toxic work environment. So you're seeing these different factors come into play. You've got, uh, you know, a, a inhibitor of creativity and innovation. And at the same time, you've got a, you know, toxic work environment that's, you know, making it difficult for people to attract and retain the talent that is so hard to uh, get a hold of today and to uh, bring into your organization and keep them long term so that you can have a sustainable, you know, healthy culture at the same time. So uh, looking at all that, it's like, okay, this is something that's really interesting. And I don't think a lot of people are talking about it. So then I started really unearthing, okay, why are we addicted to blame? And then, you know, what kind of impact is it having? on our workplaces? And then thirdly, you know, how can we move beyond blame? And so those are the things that I've lined out in my book, blame this book. You know, this is such an interesting angle and, and I think an important point. And as you were describing some of those dynamics, I was thinking about some cases that I've, I've been involved in and work I've done at large global brands where, they might have had a legacy culture of uh, what I'll call, for lack of a better word, 100% certainty. In other words, if they were mm. looking at an opportunity in the market, for example, they would launch on these exhaustive fact-finding, data-finding analyses to assess with 100% certainty the go or no-go on the decision. Well, in, in retrospect, what they discovered was they were missing most of their opportunities right? because that analysis took too long. And it was the classic Peralto principle. They could get 80% of their data points quickly, reliably, and frame up what was a pretty clear decision point, but they wouldn't pull the trigger without the remaining 20%. Well, that data took way too long to figure out, way too long to assess. And again, the, the, the market would kind of move away from them and the opportunity would be gone. So they, they would have secured a destiny of sorts, but at the same time didn't allow for innovation and growth because they weren't nimble enough to make the decision. Right. And yeah. And the traditional culture there was to place blame on those who failed to achieve that 100% certainty. Right. 
So management got together and said, let's change the mindset and the culture. Let's accept that 70, 80% level of certainty. Let's agree that we're going to make our decisions based on that. And if we fail, it's okay. Nobody's going to get blamed. Nobody's going to get penalized for it. And when they started rolling this out, they had an incredible cultural pushback because people that had been there for any length of time went, no, that's not how it works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that hadn't been their experience. So, yeah. been my experience. If I yeah. don't get my 100%, I'm, I'm going to get rated poorly for it, and it's going to cost me in the long run, literally, you know, uh, on annual merit and the way they did their rating and all of that. So, right. It, it was a much bigger challenge to genuinely change the culture to embrace that 70, 80, no blame, no fault kind of mindset. And it was interesting. I was working with one of their groups and, and because of their size, the numbers got seemingly significant really fast, but in their context, it weren't so significant. There were There were transactions being considered that were tens of millions of dollars daily oh wow and this work team they had to convince them that if they blew the call on 20 million dollars and it was wrong that was okay we, we were going to live with that in the big scheme of things there was much more money to be made and if we needed to learn something by blowing 10 20 even 50 million dollars that's okay we're, we're going to move on and at again at first people didn't really by that they did they didn't really they, they thought those would be career ending moves which is what it had normally happened and uh it was finally proven the management was really okay with that well the the learning the fail fast got accomplished really quickly and the learning kind of went through the roof and then all of a sudden they had more than made up any of those losses that they had incurred all in the same accounting period so yeah yeah, it was a good win. That reminds me of there's a, a story that I share in my book that's from uh, IBM back in the days where they were really known as international business machines. Right. And uh, the CEO at the time was uh, uh, Thomas Watson. Right. And so the the AI that they utilize right now, Watson, was named after him. And this was, I believe it was shortly after uh, World War II, and they had a big downturn. And because everything, or it was right around the time of World War II, and uh, there was a big shift in um, buying this equipment versus, you know, having to, you know, uh, ration and having to put everything toward the war effort, right? And so um, Watson, you know, they had, he had a uh, salesperson that had done a presentation and he had lost a million dollar project. And of course, this was uh, back probably 80 years ago. And so, you know, a million dollars is a huge sum of money at that time. So it's, it's significant today. It was hugely significant back then. And so this salesperson comes in uh, to the CEO and places an envelope down on Watson's desk. And Watson asks him, you know, what's this? And the guy said, this is my resignation. And he said, no, I do not accept this resignation. And the person said, well, I just lost a million dollars you have to fire me, right? He said, no. Why would I fire you? I just invested a million dollars into your education. 
And so he's got a salesperson that had gone through that process, hopefully had learned something through that process of failure and that they were able to turn around shortly after their circumstances outside of the salesperson control that had led to that failure. And Watson knew that, and he wanted him to learn lessons from that, make some adjustments, and then next time to win the business. And so that, you know, and IBM had gone on to, you know, become the juggernaut that they are today, right? And so you see companies where leadership recognizes that when a failure occurs, and if you just have that knee-jerk reaction of, we're just going to fire the person that we hold responsible for that failure, then you lose institutional knowledge circumstantial knowledge that could be helpful in the learning process. And a lot of times those reactions happen so quickly that leadership doesn't even really fully understand what occurred. And so when they send people out the door, it's even to a greater detriment so that later on, you know, they think, you know, we found, you know, the person to blame, we put the blame on them, we kicked them out the door, we solved this problem. Well, the opposite is true. They created a bigger problem because not only did that mistake happen, but later on it recurs because they didn't learn anything through that process. They never ferreted out the root cause of that failure and therefore it recurs over and over again. And you see these organizations that have that happen, they have a revolving door of people and at the same time, they have this, they enter into the same failures and mistakes over and over again, no matter who they have in those positions. You know, you alluded when you were telling your backstory, you alluded to a couple of types, or I forgot your exact word, a couple of either types or elements of blame. Mm -hmm. what, what are those and, and what is that about? Yeah, so my definition that I work with, and it's helpful to define blame because a lot of people, when I talk to people about blame, they'll come up to me later and they'll say, okay, well, but you know, how do we make sure that we're that people are responsible and we're holding them accountable? I say those are really good questions because it's not the same thing as blame. Responsibility and blame are two different things. And so I work from a definition of blame that it's resenting somebody for a, a failure or mistake that has occurred. And so the root word in that definition is resenting, right? That it's resentment. And so blame. if you re recognize that blame is resentment, then it's easier to say, okay, is it helpful? You ask the question, is, blame, is resentment helpful in this situation? We had a mistake happen. We had, um, you know, a, a failure occur. Now, does it help us to resent somebody because of that? And it becomes a more obvious answer that resentment doesn't really help you solve the problem. It actually becomes a distraction from the solution. And to actually find the solution, you need to set aside that resentment and objectively look at what has occurred. You, you do. There's a company called uh, Twilio. And they create tools for software developers, right? And they, one of their biggest clients was Uber at this time. And Uber calls up and says that they have to scale back dramatically on the amount of work that they were doing with Twilio. And it was such a significant shortfall that when they announced it to Wall Street, their stock value was reduced by 40% in one day. And so it was a huge hit to the company. 
the CEO, Jeff, Twil- Jeff Lawson, uh, he looked at the situation and he thought, okay, I have to do something. As a leader, you feel the pressure in the wake of a circumstance like that. And so he felt like he needed to fire the person who was in charge of the Uber account. That was his knee-jerk reaction because he's feeling that that pressure at the time. And when you encounter, you know, after a failure or mistake, you you feel that in the environment that you're in. You feel that 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 level of pressure that comes in and makes leaders want to take some sort of decisive action in that situation. And it also puts all of the people in that culture on edge at the same time. And so Lawson, Lawson decided, no way. Okay, before I have this knee-jerk reaction and I fire somebody, I should probably take a look at why. I don't really understand what happened. Why did they scale back on the, on the services that they were procuring from us? And when they took an objective look at what had occurred, he realized that that account manager for Uber had over 30 accounts that they were managing at the same time, including their largest account. And he decided, wait a second, I can't fire anyone. And in fact, I need to do the opposite. I need to hire more people so that our account managers, we can have dedicated account managers for these larger accounts, these enterprise accounts like Uber. And so they made changes to their structure. And instead of, you know, they lost, you know, a significant amount of business, significant significant amount of value in their company, but they were able to turn around and they were able to increase the size of their company and grow it by fivefold in a short amount of time. And Lawson credited the fact that they instituted these blameless postmortems at this time, what he called them, so that they would actually look at instead of you know blaming someone and finding a scapegoat, which so many companies do and firing somebody, it was, okay, now we're we've got a process for objectively looking at what happened, like kind of like an after action review that the military would do and objectively look at what occurred, what we're trying to accomplish, what's the difference between the two, and then what are some changes that we can make moving forward and in in order to improve our situation. And so they were able to grow their company instead of, you know, shrinking with the impact of losing a major account like Uber. And so that shows you like the proof is in the pudding that this isn't just, you know, uh, pie in the sky by and by. This isn't just warm fuzzies. You know, this is something that impacts the bottom line for organizations because this blame culture that they allowed to, you know, to grow within their organization gets in the way of them actually finding solutions to some of their biggest problems and mistakes. Well, and you know the the presence of that blame mindset is, is what fuels additional fear. I think, it, and it becomes a, a, a never-ending cycle. And as we talk here, it strikes me the question: uh, Why do we do that? Why why do we think blaming is is the right answer? Does it you know does it assuage Wall Street? Does it you know? Uh, I don't know, you know, does it make the CEO feel powerful when he makes a, a drastic move like that? Like, like you said, right? Log- logically, traditionally, the, the person at the point of that spear usually gets fired or, or the classic, as they call it, career ending move to have done that. And I've certainly watched people that have been subject to that kind of decision making. But my, my fundamental question is, I wonder where in the world does that come from? Why? Why do we think that's the right answer sometimes? 
Well, the funny thing is, is when you really look at it and um, you think about uh, our history and even go back to, you know, the, a, um, something as central to a lot of different people's faith as, you know, a biblical story of the Garden of Eden, right? That is a story that is at the, the genesis, literally, right, of uh, the Judeo-Christian faith. It's uh, Judaism and it's the Muslim faith also includes the story of the Garden of Eden. And so you've got a story where the only people in all of creation, they are told, you know, they cannot eat the fruit of a certain tree. They can eat anything except for the fruit of this one tree. And of course, that's the tree that they ended up eating from. And then when God confronts them in this story about what they had done, you know, Adam says, oh, my bad, right? I, I made the mistake. I'll take responsibility for this. No, he, he doesn't do that, right? He says, oh, the, the woman here, the woman made the me do it, yeah. The woman made me do it, right? And so then Eve, she's the only person left. So it was either Adam or Eve, right? She's going to take the blame, right? And she doesn't either. She says, no, this serpent. So she blames it on a snake, that a snake had deceived her instead. And so you see, and you, this made me wonder, like, you know, this, this is a, um, you know, a, one of the initial stories that you see in the books of faith for these three main religions that really represent more than half of the global population ascribed to these three religions. Why is it that this is so integral to the faith of so many people? And I, I really believe that it is, you know, maybe that part of that original sin that they call it isn't just that they disobeyed their creator but they also did not take responsibility and they used blame instead in that moment. And that that is something that shows something that's very innate in all of us. It's something that all of us struggle with because we don't want to be vulnerable and we don't want to show our flaws at the same time. We want to be seen as good people that do the right thing. And then at the same time, we don't want to feel the consequences for those actions either. So we want to escape that. But at the same time, there's this sense of justice that is in our society. And if that justice isn't quenched in some way, then that pressure that we talked about earlier continues to linger. And you're just waiting for that other shoe to fall, that blame to hit. And so what, you know, somebody in authority typically will find a scapegoat to take that blame. Business is all about solving complex problems as fast as you can create them. Become the best problem solver by leading others to greatness too. And the first step is going to DougThorpe.com. DougThorpe is known globally for coaching entrepreneurs and business leaders, improving their performance and the work output of everyone surrounding them. You can find health, wealth, and happiness by learning to lead others to health, wealth, and happiness. Go to DougThorpe.com now and order Doug's books or hire him to coach your managers. That's Doug, T-H-O-R-P-E.com. And there's a uh, French uh, historian and sociologist that taught at Stanford uh, named Rene Girard. And he said he looked back throughout, you know, all of ancient society, all the way back to ancient society and saw that every one of them showed this, this same mechanism at play that violence would happen within these societies and the violence would escalate and one group would get, you know, 
commit violence against another group, and there would be retaliation. And this violence would escalate across the society. And eventually what each of these societies decided was, okay, in order to, to bring peace back to our society and keep our society from devolving into chaos, we're going to pick somebody that we can take all of this violence and we can place it on that one individual. And then we cast them out or potentially even kill them in this situation, killed the scapegoat. And that will clean the slate. And what it does effectively is it takes all these people that are fighting against each other and pits them against one person, eliminates that person. And now everybody, it cleared the deck and everybody's on the same page mm -hmm. all of a sudden. And we replace that with a justice system, right? So that we don't have to, um, utilize a scapegoat we don't have to place the violence on an innocent person but in theory our modern justice systems find you know root out they actually look objectively at what occurred and find who's responsible and hold them accountable and so it's not blame it's responsibility and accountability instead but we don't have that same architecture within our business organizations and so within companies it typically falls back. It's interesting that even in modern days, we're falling back on this primitive concept of a scapegoat instead of following the model of a modern justice system instead. It strikes me that one other element of this would be the notion that one of the things that supposedly separates us as human beings from all other animals on the planet is the ability to have rational thinking. Right. Well, well, when I hear people talk about rational thinking, and even when I do it myself, it, it's usually there's always more positive connotation. You know, it's kind of the if then logic. Well, if I do this, I can get here and do that. But what strikes me about this, it, it's that same capacity for rationalizing the moment but in a negative connotation, you know, the moment had a bad outcome. So now if we, we don't want the spotlight on us because it makes us feel less than, right. So therefore in our rational thinking, we, we, there, there's a burden here that has to be put on somebody. It's not me. Who else can it be? Yeah. It's, it's a psychological game of hot potato, right? basically. And we try to arrange it so that usually a person of who's an outsider, uh, somebody of lower status is the one that's left holding that hot potato in the end, and they're out of the game at that point. Yeah. 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 Hmm. Well, I'm, I, I'm also thinking about um, even at, at a very personal level, I, I think about how many couples I've known that have, you know, fallen out of favor with each other and they've sought counsel and inevitably blame is the big issue. I, I mean, that's one of the biggest forces that's prohibiting the ability to come back to a positive relationship. There's this sense that something wrong has happened or something has been left out of the relationship and who's responsible for that. And I had a counselor friend one time, he, he called it kicking the, the can and meaning the, you know, on, on a stage setup, the, they use can lights to, okay. 
spotlight actors and events on the stage. And he called it kicking the can, meaning one party who feels violated, you know, wants to kick the can, the spotlight over to the other person. And so they'll do anything they can to prove that that other person is not living up to the expectations. And, but in reality, they might be the big perpetrator of the break and they just don't want the can on them. Right. And yeah. They're projecting a lot so of they're projecting and diffusing, deflecting to, to try to make it be a better situation. Yeah. There's a preeminent uh, psychologist, uh, relationship psychologist today, um, Esther Perel. And she was asked, she was talking about uh, relationships within the workplace, right? Not necessarily romantic relationships, just uh, workplace dynamics, basically. And they asked her, what is the number one sign of a toxic workplace? And her immediately she answered and said, contempt. And I think um, uh, John Gottman, uh, who is a psychologist that gave a, a framework for relationship psychology that's been used over the decades, he named contempt as one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse for relationship. And it's probably the primary one. And I think that contempt and resentment are synonymous with each other. And that resentment is triggered a lot of times by blame, that that is a huge trigger for creating resentment in relationships. And it's a huge reason why so many workplaces are toxic as well. You know, as you were describing that, and, and this is a really kind of random thought here, but as you're describing that, I was reminded of a show I did last year with a gentleman who introduced me to something called the tall poppy syndrome. Yes. Have you heard that in your work? I, yeah, the, with it? yeah, tall poppy or the tallest blade of grass sometimes, they will say, yeah. And uh, apparently in, in North America, we are not as aware of it or, or dialed into it because we have a natural um, sort of capitalistic mindset that it's, you know, advanced the greater good and everybody's climbing to or working to climb the mountain and, and, and mm -hmm. rise yeah. up. Individual. And in other, other parts of the world, particularly in Australia, it turns out, when somebody rises above the crowd, they become the tall poppy. Right. And it's, there's an element of it's deemed inappropriate to try to bring the spotlight on yourself. And as we were talking on this one episode, uh, and this gentleman was a very accomplished physician. And, you know, in the medical profession, the further up the chain you go, it gets very competitive. It's very, um, I started to use the word cutthroat, not meaning it literally, but, but there's a lot of politics that gets played on who gets the grant money, who gets yeah. the corner office, who gets all the perks and all the staff and everything. Dog eat dog. Yeah. Dog eat dog. And, and so it's this, um, if a person is perceived as the tall poppy, there are cutters in the organization that will work to cut them down, you know, knock them back to size, you know, with everybody right. else. And I, I think the, connection point here is one of the tools of that process is to create blame, you know, find fault in that other person, that tall poppy personality and 
cut them back to size by proving that they committed some grievance or, or some fail. And so, you know, the blame element becomes a, a big tool in that arsenal. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. And I, there's another story that I shared in my book, which is um, a lady that was a medical correspondent for ABC news and her name's uh, Dr. Jennifer Ashton. And she gets a phone call one morning and finds out that her uh, ex-husband had uh, jumped off the bridge just down the road from uh, from her home. And so the headlines come out very shortly after this. And the headlines were she had um, divorced her husband. She and her husband had gone through an amicable, amicable divorce. Uh, and it had been three weeks since their divorce. And then he committed suicide. So all the headlines that the media put out connected those dots very closely. And, you know, something that was a correlation, they framed it like it was causation, that three weeks after the divorce, that that's what caused her ex-husband to commit suicide, let alone that his suicide note said the opposite of that. And basically the very first thing that he said was that his wife wasn't to blame for this, but the media headlines were just, you know, horrible. And she already, of course, as anybody would in that situation, there's a certain amount of self-blame that you start uh, to feel in those kind of circumstances. The uh, people, the survivors of uh, when they've had a loved one commit suicide, their suicide rate tends to double at that point because they're taking on that self-blame through that situation. And so uh, Dr. Ashton had gone through that and she had mounted on top of that because she had somewhat of a celebrity status being on you know, ABC News as a medical correspondent that, you know, the media flooded the headlines with, you know, you know, doctor commits suicide after celebrity after celebrity wife divorces him, basically mm -hmm. connecting those dots very closely. And so within our culture, we mm -hmm. have this blame culture, right? We want it when something like that happens, we want to find somebody at fault. And if it's a celebrity, that tall poppy right? Uh, scenario comes up and we experience some sort of, our culture experiences some sort of schadenfreude over that, that uh, they experience some, some sense of joy in seeing somebody with, you know, celebrity status or whatever being taken down a notch. And it's really a shame that we do that, but we do it in other ways too, that, you know, there was the, uh, you probably remember the, the gorilla in the Cincinnati Zoo, Harambe, right? That a mother, lost track of one of her kids. Uh, toddler ends up sneaking down into the gorilla habitat and uh, the crowd starts to gather around. Harambe is a you know endangered uh, lowland silverback gorilla and he's in the habitat and he sees this hubbub happening, sees the child down in this moat that's around their habitat. He, he goes over possibly to protect the child, but then the crowd gets worked into a frenzy because they're seeing this gorilla come close to this young child and they see the danger that's happening. And so the gorilla then, you know, sees all this um, fracas that's happening with the uh, zoo visitors and tries to take the child away from them to possibly get him into safety, but is dragging him through this moat. And so the the zoo authorities have to do something and they decide that the only option that they have is to shoot Harambe with with a gun, not a tranquilizer dart, shoot him with a bullet and they kill him with one bullet, right? And so then the public outcry is huge that, you know, it's against the mom 
you know, how dare she, you know, not watch her child is against the zoo for, you know, shooting the gorilla. Jane Goodall, who, I mean, if anybody loves the gorillas, right, it's Jane Goodall. She comes out and says that, and, and Jack Hanna, another, you know, animal rights advocate, they both say this was the only option. They couldn't use a tranquilizer dart because the amount of time it could take five to 10 minutes to sedate the gorilla. And who knows what he would have done to that child. They had to put the, the safety of the child first and foremost in that situation. But to this day, there are still, I think, uh, I'm trying to remember the date, but that might've been, I want to say it was 2013 when this occurred. So it's been about 10 years since that incident. Don't quote me on that, but it's somewhere around 10 years since that incident has occurred. And still to this day, you can buy a Justice for Harambe t-shirt online <laughs> and bumper stickers because yeah. the, the public is just incensed about this. And uh, the uh, local authorities came out and said, look, if you think that you know you would not lose track of a child when you you know brought your whole family out to the zoo for the you know something like this then you you probably don't have small children to they understand this and so they were trying to create sympathy and empathy for this this mother that this had occurred to and of course she you know experienced trauma through this situation as well so in a, in a kind of a way she's a victim as well and so mm -hmm. instead of judging other people and trying to use blame as a sense of judgment on other people, we, we need to be developing empathy instead. But we see just time after time in these, you know, these news stories, how the public reacts, and you can see that blame culture just cropping up in any of these situations. Right. Well, with that said, Dustin, uh, what can a business owner or leader do to change the culture in their team to do more to eliminate blame and and make the environment be far more positive for everyone involved. So, yeah, I think that, you know, what I show in my book is that, you know, being able to institute tools like the, you know, blameless autopsy, blameless postmortem, whichever phrase you want to use for that. Uh, I give some tools for uh, going through that process and how you can do that. Uh, that's very helpful to have that. Amy Emmonson also point to a an assessment that she has for um, for psychological safety. And so evaluating the psychological safety in your organization, getting your employees to take this really simple survey and then getting a baseline for where are we with psychological safety and what are some of the areas maybe that we can address at this point so that people understand that they can take responsibility and they don't have to use the blame habit in those situations. But I think first and foremost, one of the one of the uh, most helpful things that we can do as leaders is to create clarity in our organization. And so when it comes to blame, that is helping people understand what blame is and giving that definition of blame like I gave at, at the beginning of, you know, it's resentment that we hold towards someone or something that we hold at fault for a misfortune, right? And so if we can clarify that blame is resentment and that it really doesn't help in uh, situations after a failure or a mistake, and then we can give definitions for responsibility that we're taking ownership of our own actions and accountability that we allow others to hold us accountable for our actions, that it helps us create, you know, clarity around that and awareness. And we become aware of, you know, the fact that 
blame isn't helpful. We become aware of when we're starting to use blame. And I've just noticed it, and I would say, you know, be careful what kind of topics you decide, you know, to write a book about, because now anytime <laughs> my wife or my kids start to hear me say something, you know, they'll hold me accountable to that. They'll say, dad, you're, you're, wait a minute, you know, are you actually blaming me for this? And I have to stand back. Okay. No, all right. You're right. Let's look at, you know, what actually happened. Let's talk about, <laughs> you know, I have to use these same tools at home and they, they won't let me be a hypocrite. But it, what it showed me also is just by, you know, and my kids haven't read the book. They just have heard me talk about this a little bit. And just that little bit of awareness that we've brought to this topic helps us start to ferret it out because blame grows in power in darkness. And when you bring light to it and you start pointing a light at it and showing it for what it is, it, it doesn't work anymore. And that's one of the things when uh, Rene Girard talked about the scapegoat mechanism that these societies use, he said it only worked when they actually believed that that scapegoat was guilty. And so there was kind of a mystical belief that somehow this lowly person had created these circumstances. But when people would actually realize that, no, this is just an innocent person, that scapegoat mechanism no longer worked and blame no longer works when we start to see, you know, that we're scapegoating, that we're using blame. So that, that definitely helps. And it's also about, I think within companies, we see a lot of talk about inclusivity and uh, diversity within culture. But I think uh, you know, foremost, inclusivity is really important when we're talking about blame because it is so much easier to blame somebody that's an outsider, somebody that we see as different as us. So when we create a culture where we've got awareness around blame, where we create an inclusive culture, where we uh, make people feel accepted and we recognize them as one of us, not uh, making people feel like outsiders or creating cliques within our organization, and then we're also able to challenge our assumptions and we're able to say, okay, my initial reaction was to blame this person, but I'm going to challenge that initial assumption and gather evidence first before we make that assumption. Because otherwise you, <clears throat> um, you end up just running into confirmation bias. You make a decision that person was guilty and then everything after that, you start to exclude any evidence to the contrary of that, and you only allow confirmation bias to take over. And then you use the tools that we have at our disposal, especially like an after-action report or a blameless post-mortem, and uh, actually, you know, you know, root cause analysis and different tools that are available that allow us to actually ferret out these issues and identify them and create solutions, then that's how you get around uh, the blame habit. Good word. Good word. Well, Dustin, thank you so much. It's um, we've, we've kind of run out of time here and I, I really feel like there's another two or three episodes possible <laughs> here, but uh, uh, thank you for sitting in and sharing all of this with us. If, if folks are curious and want to learn more, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Yeah. So my book, Blame This Book, that outlines you know so much more than what we've been able to talk about today. Uh, is available on Amazon. It's also available on uh, Audible as well as an audiobook. Uh, and I have, uh, there's a website called blamethisbook.com as well. And then uh, I not, not only address culture, but also address uh, branding as well. And so if you want to look me up professionally, you can look me up on LinkedIn, Dustin Stager, S-T-A-I-G-E-R, or uh, my website is thepeoplebrand.com. Great. 
Well, again, thank you for sitting in and sharing this with us. And as always, folks, we're going to have this contact info in our show notes. So please uh, drop down there and check it out. Take a look. I do want to remind everybody, we have a video version of this show over on YouTube, a channel by the same name, Leadership Powered by Common Sense. Hop over there, take a look, give us a comment, give us some feedback. And as always, I want to invite people, if you or someone you know could be a good guest for our show, drop me a line, hop over to my website at dougthorpe.com, that's T-H-O-R-P-E, dot com, Give me a, leave me a note there with your recommendations, and I look forward to hearing from you. For now, we're going to sign off, say goodbye, go out there and make it a great day. You've been listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense hosted by Doug Thorpe. If you would like to know more about the coaching and advisory services he provides, visit DougThorpe.com.